teaching children to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, helping them to believe the gospel about their sin, about God's righteousness, about the only hope of salvation in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we should be humbled by that and be desperate then for God's help. And so you'll see in your notes, just that first section, our hearts exposed in parenting. Because that's one thing parenting will do. It'll expose us. It'll expose our hearts. And that begins with all the fleshly responses that we express in response to the weight of parenting. And so just to ask yourself, even if you don't have kids, what, how do you tend to respond to impossible tasks? How do you tend to respond to things the Lord calls you to do that you know you can't do? There's a whole list there of just fleshly responses. These were just, we see them in scripture, but also just off the top of my head. These are all things I've seen in my own life. The first temptation is to minimize, to minimize the weight of the task, to pretend the mission is not so great. Just reduce parenting to providing meals to providing clothing, to providing shelter, to providing education, to mere behavior modification. Like we can spend years just minimizing parenting to that and therefore not really feeling, and that's our way of dealing with the weight. Because once our kids start talking and you start realizing what's in there, And the older they get and the more you realize, okay, how do I convince them to love God and love other people? You realize, okay, that's not in your control. And one way we can deal with that weight is just minimize, okay, maybe that's not what it's about. Let's just turn it into providing some food and clothing and shelter. Just surviving these 18 years, getting them out the door, and we're good. But then there's the other side, that's anxiety and panic. That can be a way we respond to the weight of parenting. We just panic and therefore run away. Even if it's just emotionally avoid it, shut down, or seize control in that anxiety. It's tempting to parent by anxiety to be motivated by fear as the reason we say what we say to our kids or do what we do. And eventually it doesn't take long for our kids to see that, that everything we're telling them to do and to not do and the emotion that we bring is primarily motivated by anxiety, fear of it going wrong. Or thirdly, anger is one fleshly response just to the weight of parenting. We just live in constant frustration, constant irritation. Shut down, blow up, seize control, become bitter. Control is a fleshly response to the weight of parenting just to try to control everything about their world. Control everything we can about their life. Maybe reading every single book available. Isn't it amazing just how many books there are on parenting? 
just by Christians even. And every year they sell really well. Why? Because we're like, well, it still hadn't gotten figured out. Like after thousands of years of parenting books, we're still looking for the answer. And because there's just, so, we just want to find, okay, what are the seven keys? Like if, if I see another seven keys book published on anything, you just want to scream, right? Unless it's the seven keys to making a great pot pie. Like, but if it's got anything to do with marriage or parenting or life, as if we can just reduce it down, but there's something in us that is so demanding of turning it into that. Can it just be something I can control? Blame is a common fleshly response. We'll just spend our lives blaming God, blaming our kids, blaming our spouse. That if they were all just doing their job, this wouldn't be hard. If they were all just doing their job, we wouldn't be facing whatever this problem is that we're facing. And it's really tempting when your kids struggle, when one of your kids goes sideways from you, when things start to go wrong, or they leave and at the age of 19, 20, 21, 22, like you see things start to blow up and you just want, who do I blame for this? And maybe you blame yourself. Because there's something in us that wants to think it's that cause effect, that it's that simplistic. Despair, I mean just hopelessness. What's the point? No matter what I do, no matter how hard I try, my kids just don't do what I say. They don't believe what I believe. They don't feel what I tell them to feel. And we can just despair and give up. Complain, mostly to ourselves. Just that inner dialogue of grumbling, but often to others. Medicate with the world, with television, with food, with drink, with narcotics, with whatever we can get our hands on to numb how hard it is, to medicate it. Or escape into work, into cleaning, into fantasy, into dreaming about the day parenting will end. Right? There's, a, there's an escapism there. And again, it doesn't mean there isn't that that longing for things to be easier at times, it's just, that's not necessarily evil. We just have to be careful about clinging to that too carefully. Because you may be doing everything you're doing just with that dream that, okay, here in about 10 more years, 10 more years, five more years, five more years. The kids will be out of the house and we can just hit cruise control and coast to glory. And maybe the Lord will just take us to heaven quietly in our sleep without any pain. And there's something in us that wants ease. And so escape. And some of you have learned this and found this already, that the Lord has a way of making sure that responsibility, that sense of weight for your kids just doesn't stop when they leave your house. You think, okay, maybe when they get married. Okay, maybe when they have kids. But, well, no, you're just going to have all new sets of things to worry about. 
And you're going to have, yeah, there's just going to, things can happen. Tragedies can happen. Where even as a grandparent, you're raising kids again. And so are we ready for a life of disciple making? A life of joyful self-sacrifice to help and equip the next generation, whatever form that might be. Circumstantial prayer is another fleshly response where we're just praying all the time for the Lord to fix it, to fix them, to fix us, to fix whatever it is. And so it takes a heart that is humble before God, really learning to trust God, learning to love God, learning to love our children in order to care enough about their spiritual welfare to really care about it. And yet at the same time to realize, I can't control this. I can't fix them or me. And so we can fall into the ditch of apathy or we can fall into the ditch of self-sovereignty. And the Christian life is learning to live on a whole different road. Like, how do you live on a road where you really, really care, and yet you really, really trust God? You really, really long for his kingdom come and his will to be done in your kids' lives, and yet you really, really open-handedly defer to his kingdom come, his will be done. So Jesus in the garden is going to pray, if there's a way for this cup to pass, Lord, let it pass. He didn't want to drink the cup of God's wrath, and yet he's going to close that prayer, but not my will be done. Your will be done. And that's a model prayer when facing heavy things, weighty things. And so number two, there are examples of spirit-enabled responses to the weight of parenting. And there's that first one, just fervent, constant prayer. But it's that certain kind of prayer. Lord, we'd really love this, but not our will be done. Your will be done really praying that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. I mean, that's when Jesus, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Like, Jesus doesn't then give them, okay, here's a rote prayer that you pray all the time for everything. There's lots of prayers in the Bible. But he is modeling in that prayer a kind of posture of heart that should frame every prayer. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Meaning, may your name be regarded as holy in all the earth. And then right from that, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what a very open-handed prayer of faith that is, that we know it, we can say it, but do we really believe that? Do we really want it? Lord, whatever this means, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what I want. I trust you with these outcomes. Because there's a part of parenting that it's just so tempting to control every single detail so that whatever trajectory we send them out on from our house, like there's minimal trouble, minimal damage, minimal fill in the blank. Yet there's so many examples in scripture of parents who are so faithful as parents and their kids just blew things up. And other examples of parents who actually just 
were disengaged or absent or sinful. And what the Lord made of their kid was something pretty marvelous. I mean, as if to say, it's not man who wills or man who runs, but God who has mercy. And so what that doesn't mean is, okay, we just just shouldn't try. It's no, we should give our lives, our hearts to this work and then trust God with it. Daily feeding on God's word, not as an academic exercise, but as food from God, as light, as wisdom, as counsel for parenting. Seek help from the church, both for prayer and for counsel, to be a body of believers to our kids. It's one of the gifts that God gives in the church is to give a generation of those who are following Jesus to influence and pray for and care for a generation of those who do not yet follow Jesus. And so part of the gift we give our kids is actually other parents, other people who can influence, pray for, counsel. Because for every kid, it's a different age, but at some point, your kid really starts to realize how not cool you are. I mean, it's just... And with each of our kids, you can usually point the date. Oh, okay, I start to, here's the day when they started to look at me like I had no idea what I was talking about. And there's something about other people in their world, sometimes your own p- friends as parents, that, that they will listen to, or that they do have an ear for, that the Lord does give some road in. And we have to be humble enough to praise God for that and appreciate that. Because they, they need to start listening to people in addition to you. We just pray those voices are wise and godly. Be humbled by our lack of control. Trust God, trust the Lord with the outcomes. That's a spirit-enabled response to the weight of parenting, just to be humbled by it. The Apostle Paul was so aware that what he was sent out to do as an apostle was so massive and over, so overwhelming that it had to be a work of God through him. Because it didn't, he didn't just quit and go, then I guess I won't go preach the gospel to the nations. No, he just recognized. He was constantly asking people to pray for him. Persevere in faith and obedience as parents in speaking the truth in love and in faithfulness. And so it's so, so much of parenting is a work of perseverance. Speaking truth in love, being faithful, and waiting on God. And that's all the way to death. And so there's nothing in parenting he's asking or calling or commanding us to do that he doesn't already command us to do. Speak truth in love, be faithful, and pray, and wait. Learn to love, teach, and guide our children even more. And so I think the weight of the responsibility can push us to grow again. So then there is value in reading books, reading scripture, talking to others, but not to figure out the formula, not to control everything, just to to keep growing in wisdom, to keep growing as a father or mother. I mean, in... You know, Ruth and I have been at it for over 20 years, and there's still days where it's like, okay, I need to grow in this. 
I need to learn how to. That part, it just never ends, never stops. Boast in Christ and his work, our only confidence and hope. Your oldest son came to faith in Christ, laying in his bed in the middle of the night while Ruth and I were asleep. It's a great, I always remember that. He gives to his beloved even in his sleep. But what struck me about it is, yeah, we were unconscious when God was working. And just the next day, he was different. He'd been born again, and God did it in the night. And so that's, that's boasting in Christ and his work. That's our only confidence and hope. Rather than boasting in our parenting righteousness, and that's why that question that people will ask, young people who either don't have kids or about have young kids, will ask, okay, how, do you, how, how did you do it? And I don't know about some of you, but any of you have been parents for a while, it's an uncomfortable question, right? Where you're like, because you don't want to say, well, we didn't do anything. We did something. But how do you convey that that something we did didn't make the difference? That's not the decisive piece. Because what it took was somebody had to reach the heart. Somebody had to reach the affections of the soul. Somebody had to do something in deep places that we couldn't reach. I think it can produce praise for God and his grace. Thanksgiving to God for his mercy. Because he really does help. Even if you feel like your kids aren't doing well. Spiritually, even if you feel like there isn't a whole lot of fruit, well, the Lord's still helping you. He's still strengthening you, still comforting you, still there for you. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. So you can always praise God for that. A longing for heaven is a spirit-enabled response, not as a mere escape, but as the fulfillment of God's plan for all the work that he's called us to put in. And so we long for our children to be in the presence of God forever, to be in heaven. But again, because of God's grace, not our merit, there's not going to be any patting on the back in heaven. Not our own or anybody else's because it'll be really, really clear. He took our couple loaves and fish and he fed 10,000 with them took our little contribution that he was glad to use and called us to use, and yet he used it to bear fruit. And so a day in the life of a parent, it's filled with so many conversations, so many activities. The tasks really do never seem to end. And faithful parenting does involve feeding our kids and clothing our kids and housing our kids and providing a basic education and giving opportunities for our kids to learn responsibility to, um, a lot of it does involve transporting them from A to B. There's been seasons of our parenting life where most of our conversations are in a car on the way somewhere. 
gathering with friends, drawing them, bringing them to church, coaching their sports teams, encouraging their friendships. There's all those pieces, but that's context. That's activity. The real guts is the spiritual work in the middle of it all. So how are our hearts to be expressed in parenting? This is that point B there. Any questions about that first section, though? Just whether fleshly responses or spirit-enabled responses, just to the weight of parenting. Any questions, comments, clarifications? Dan? Yeah, yeah. this is a moment where, yeah, for Paul was so extreme for he and his companion, companions that he, they realized, okay, we're dead. The situation we're in, it will lead to our death. And God delivered them. And in looking back, he could see, okay, this, he used that to teach us to rely on him who raises the dead. And yeah, what a great verse to apply to every area of life, but including parenting. That you're just, he's going to make sure you face things with your kids that you cannot carry on your own. And that is to teach us to not rely on ourselves, but on God. Who, and if he can raise the dead, what can he not do? You know. Being a godly example. In the parenting, you mean, or in terms of... Yeah, that there's something about just following Jesus and trusting Jesus and living for his kingdom and glory that itself, you pray, gets into the atmosphere of your home and your life. You, you pray that trickles in, that God will use that. Um, and so parenting, we could say, is fundamentally about representing the Lord Jesus Christ to our children, helping them come to know him, training them to live for his glory and kingdom in the course of daily life. And at that level of explanation, at least, it's really simple. Representing Christ, helping them to come to know him and trust him, and then training them to follow him. But even at that level of simple explanation, it's really, really hard. Right? Because it's really, really hard just for ourselves to follow Christ. Like, are some of us still working on that every day? Just, just trying to get me to trust him. Trying to get me to follow him. Get me to live for his kingdom and glory. How much more to help another set of individuals do it? And so we'll just walk through some of what that means. And number one, we speak of the Lord to our children. That's one of the most basic ways that we represent Christ in our homes and the lives of our kids. We talk about God. Turn over to Psalm 78. Be in verses 5 to 8, Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 5. He established a testimony in Jacob 
and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers. Isn't that something like he raised up a generation of fathers and said, don't be like your fathers. Instead, you teach your children. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. There's even great hope in that statement for any of us here who didn't have godly parents. God will use that too. He'll say through his word, yeah, don't be like that. And that's very helpful. Instead, be a generation that teaches their children to know God, to know his works, and just as importantly, to set their hope in him, to set their hope on him. And of course, we know that psalm is even just a reflection upon Deuteronomy 6. Where Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Do you realize that's where parenting starts? Is we have to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's, it's very hard to pass on a message that we don't believe. To speak of a great God that we don't think is all that great. To sort of talk about great works that we don't think are very great or to love a person we don't love. And so all faithful parenting begins with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Just not written down on a piece of paper, not on tablets of stone, but something that we take to heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, let talk of God and his word touch every part of your life. And so we read the word of God with our children. We pray with them and for them. And we pray that the Lord would open their eyes to delight in God's word, that they would take it to heart. We bring them with us to the gathering of the church. We bring them to hear the preaching of the word, to hear the singing of the saints, to hear God's people pray. And so even just as we draw them to gather with the church, we're praying that the Lord would use even all those elements of the ministry of the church to get to their heart. And so we do provide food, shelter, yet always reminding our children that the food comes from the Lord. The the physical shelter is just a picture of what they really need, spiritual shelter. That the physical bread is just a picture of what they really need, spiritual bread, Christ. That the physical drink is just a picture of what they really need, living water. And so there's so many things in creation that God has given that all display his glory. 
And so they're all conversation points. Secondly, we proclaim the gospel to our children. Because the Lord could save people in whatever way he wants to do it, but he's decided to accomplish salvation of his people through the faithful proclaiming of the gospel by his people. That's how he's chosen to do it. He's chosen to save people through the word of salvation and that word be delivered by human beings. Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Meaning if your heart really believes that such that your mouth is truly confessing it, you will be saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And so that's a great word, not just to preachers, to teachers, to Christians as they do evangelism and go out into the world, but to parents. He's designed it. How are they going to hear about Christ? Well, through you. How are they going to hear the gospel? Well, through you. Now, what you can't do is cram it in and pack it in and force them to believe that. And so what we're not trying to do is just teach and train our kids a rote response to a question so that they'll look saved. That's not what we're trying to do. You don't want that. You don't want to just train them to memorize the right answer to being a Christian so that they can pretend to be a Christian. No, you're, you're sharing in the gospel and talking about Christ, and, but you're looking for the signs that, no, the Lord has actually transformed their hearts because they're saying it in ways you didn't teach them to say. And they're displaying things in their lives that can only be explained by Christ regenerating them. It's part of why, as a church, we really encourage holding baptism till later, especially for families who have kids that have grown up in the church. You know the right answers. Our kids know the right answers. They know if they were to take a, a, a short answer test or a Scantron test on what it means to be a Christian, they might get a 92. But that's not what regeneration is. And so what we pray and want to see in our kids over time is that whatever that confession is, that it is a, from a true heart conversion. They've been born again. They're filled with the Spirit. Because we want there to be real assurance of salvation when there really is salvation. But how deadly is a false assurance of salvation? How deadly is a kid going on into their 20s thinking they're a Christian just because they checked a couple boxes? And yet they're actually far from him. Because the world is full of highly religious people who really, really think their souls are secure. And how much evangelism do we do? We're actually, the first part of the work is helping them be unsaved. Like how much of your time sitting with a Muslim or a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness is helping them see that they're actually not saved? That whatever you're hoping in actually isn't going to save you in order to show them their actual need to be born again. So part of parenting even is, yeah, we we put Christ before them. We proclaim the gospel. We 
follow Jesus and were waiting on him to give them a new heart. We teach our children faithfulness to the Lord. Whether our children demonstrate faith in Christ or not, the Lord still calls us to teach them and train them. And this is where the law can be helpful. Like there is a value to the law. And it's to hold us in custody until Christ comes. Meaning it's to show us our, how impossible it is to actually keep the law as a sinner. And how much we need God to actually give us a new heart. And so as you're teaching rules or law to your kids, and as they're blowing it, that there's the opportunity actually not to say, hey, come on, you got to do better than this. We told you this, you did that. That's why you're being disciplined, so that you won't do that, you'll do this. Rather than that's the moment to go, hey, what are you learning about yourself? All we ask you to do is to be honest and don't lie. And you lied. To not steal and you stole. To not covet and you coveted. What are you learning about yourself? And that's not to condemn or to shame, but okay, the part of the, the purpose of the law is to help them see their need. It's not to help them climb to heaven. It's a mirror to show them their need for someone to fulfill that law for them. For someone to provide them a righteousness that isn't their own. So even all through their lives, like sin and failure and weakness are all opportunities not to tell them to get their act together, but to see their need for a savior. To see their need for a redeemer. And praise God he's provided one. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So just reflecting, okay, what does it mean to bring them up in discipline and instruction and not just exasperate them? Number one, by rules that God doesn't care about. Like I think one thing we need to notice is how many rules do I have in our household that really aren't important? There are rules about cleanliness, there are rules about noise. There are rules about never breaking anything. There are rules that sort of are my own traditions. As opposed to know the actual things that God says, thus saith the Lord. Thou shalt not. And so that's where just statements like cleanliness is next to godliness is horribly idolatrous. And there'll just be different ways that will sort of attribute something to the God that he's like, I, I don't care about that. Here's what I care about. Now, it doesn't mean you, you don't clean things or ask your kids to clean their rooms, or, but, but how much emotion goes into that? How much time? How much energy? How much of our frustration, irritation, and concern for our kids is actually around things that if they didn't do for the rest of their life, they wouldn't be condemned for it. While neglecting, okay, I actually hear the things that make the difference. Who they love, who they trust, where they put their hopes. 
what they do when they blow it. Self-righteousness. In other words, you may have a kid that is the most obedient, most respectful, most compliant of all your kids, and you're the most worried about. Because you know that's not from a regenerated heart. That's self-righteousness. Or that's fear of me, not fear of God. And you may have a child that is a mess, but repentant, humble. And so again, just why this matters to the heart, implications for parenting is, it's the word of God helping us see deeper than just the externals. See deeper than just the performance of duties. And see what God's really after is the heart and how much help we need to get that. We aim at the heart, number four there. Because scripture says, keep the heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And so here are just a few examples of that, just six examples very quickly of what aiming at the heart means is, number one, we aim at humility rather than pride and selfishness. Because taking the example of just fighting among siblings is not a communication problem, firstly. It's a pride problem, James 4. And James 4, 1 to 10 is going to make it clear, okay, this is actually a heart problem. Isolating ourselves from other people is not, firstly, a personality trait. It's a heart issue. It expresses sinful desire of the heart. I don't mean getting time away to be in prayer, to read scripture. I mean, as a pattern of life, I don't like people. Or I don't like to be around people. Or I'm always isolating myself from people. Well, Proverbs 18, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all sound judgment. That's a heart issue, not a personality trait. We're aiming for true worship not idolatry and false worship. And so sexual morality is not firstly a body problem, it's a false worship problem. And so don't have sex out of marriage, you might get pregnant, isn't a great motivation. It's about worship. And immorality, sexual morality is about false worship. It's about serving and being enslaved to the creation, not serving and honoring the creator. So even how we motivate our kids for sexual purity needs to be grounded in Christ-centered worship as motivation. Doesn't mean it's all we say about it, but it has to be the core of what we say. Dependence upon Christ, not independence and self-sufficiency that the behavior of Adam and Eve in eating the forbidden fruit was not driven by their physical hunger. It was driven by their desire for independence from God and self-determination. That's what I mean by we, we have to get beneath just the behavior of eating fruit to what's motivating that from the heart. Obedience, not defiance and rebellion. And so rebellious behavior is not firstly a behavior problem, but the rejection of authority from the heart. 
And I don't think we realize in this country how much we hate authority. I mean, it's sneaky how much, as a culture, we hate authority. And that's the atmosphere. I mean, the whole country was founded on rebellion, right? Now, the way we tell the story, it was, it was all good and it was fine and there was some tea and some taxes and some no representation. And again, political reasons are there. And yet, the heart of it was we want to be independent. Isn't it something that we celebrate? Independence Day. It's worth stopping and going, do, do we realize that's actually the heart of our problem before God? Again, it's symbolic. It's fine to celebrate Independence Day. The difficulty is we celebrated a lot of other days besides that. And so just teaching our kids, what does it mean to depend on a God who created you? And that obedience is about dependence. Obedience is about love. Obedience is about seeking the honor of another. Not just keeping rules, not just staying out of trouble, not just preserving our family name. Confession, not defensiveness. The story of Cain is a story of an unrepentant and defensive heart. And so everything he does with God and with his brother is an expression of that heart condition. And so something we're praying for and teaching and wanting to, to notice in our kids is their confession. Like the degree to which they're contrite. And again, in a way, there's a limit. We can't be truly confessed and be contrite without the Spirit. But yet we can begin to teach our kids those categories. That defensiveness, when we do wrong, is actually a really scary thing. That defensiveness, when we sin and we're confronted, is actually a really deadly thing. Grace, not self-righteousness. Because you just think about how much of the angry, violent behavior of the Pharisees and Sadducees toward Jesus and toward his followers was based on their desire to establish a righteousness of their own. I mean, think about how much of their anger was because of God's grace. They hated grace. They hated mercy. They were offended by the offering of forgiveness. Because they're like, we don't need that. We're paid up. We've kept some rules. We're good with God. And so that, that'll be, that's a part of focusing on heart in parenting is teaching about grace, modeling grace, ourselves as parents living under grace and upon grace so that we're continually helping our kids see what they really need is God's grace more than anything. They need God's grace in Christ. Because we believe the spirit regenerates and the gospel redeems the heart. Which is why, lastly, we trust the Lord with our children. And so we pray, we teach, we train, we discipline, we love, we serve, and we trust the Lord with our children. Judges 13, I think we gather any, every sense that Manoah and his wife were faithful as parents. 
from the conception of Samson all the way through. They were focused upon training him in the way that the Lord instructed, and they did. And yet, in the providence and sovereign purposes of God, his life was a train wreck. And God still used it. That's what he used to deliver his people. It's what he used to bring judgment upon the Philistines. But can you imagine what it was like for Manoah and his wife to watch it? To watch that train wreck? To think year after year, what on earth is he doing? And yet, they were faithful to what God had called them to be and to do. But God still had his plan. Or Samuel is another example who was surrendered to the Lord by Hannah to serve under Eli at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And everything we know from Scripture, the household of Eli would not have been a great place to raise kids. I mean, Eli's sons were godless, irreverent, immoral young men. That's what Samuel grew up around. And yet the Lord revealed himself to Samuel, taught Samuel, gifted Samuel, was faithful to Samuel in all his days. So that we would see, yeah, we should be faithful to what God has called us to be as parents, to aim at the heart and then to trust God with all the outcomes. Because he just is going to have something in mind for them that is actually so much higher, greater, better than what we have in mind. Because, I mean, if you think, if you really got what you wanted with your kids, they probably would never accomplish anything. Because they would, it would just be an easy, painless life. And so that's where it's not just trusting him when things are well, but trusting him especially when it hits the fan. Well, we're going to have some time for discussion here. We'll take about 10 minutes, 11 minutes. And there's some, in your notes, some points of discussion. So just to divide up into groups, again, of five or six. And you'll see those three questions. Just how is the Lord teaching you to trust him in the salvation and sanctification of other people, especially children? Number two, how do you tend to deal with the impossible mission of parenting? And how is the Lord teaching you to trust and hope in him when it comes to parenting? Now, you may be here and you don't have kids. You can still just answer these questions when it comes to how do you deal with impossible tasks? How do you envision yourself dealing with the impossible task of parenting? Um, so even if you don't have kids, I think still interact with those questions in your groups. So let's take about 10 or 11 minutes, and then I'll come back and close us in prayer after that.